Welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Leif Abraham, the co-CEO of investing app Public. Public offers commission-free stock trading, as well as treasury accounts, crypto, alternative assets, and even recently launched a feature called Alpha, which offers GPT-4 powered investment insights. Leif, thank you so much for joining me today. To get right into it, uh, AI, it certainly exploded into the public consciousness uh, with a rapid growth of generative tools like GPT, Stable Diffusion, DALI, and so on. Uh, it seems like all of a sudden every fintech company is rushing to describe itself as AI-powered. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Alpha? Like, What was the motivation to build this capability? What problems does it solve for your users? So, first of all, thanks for having me, right, obviously. But um, so... Obviously, when ChatGPT was released, um, we recognized, just like everyone else, that this is likely one of the most important kind of you know advancements in technology we've seen in a long time. And so for us, it was really, first off, selfishly speaking, it was really about building a little bit like our own experience with the technology and just like our own muscle with it as well, right? Um, internally, we have this little you know, kind of filter for things that we build where we try to view things through the lens of helping people be better investors, as cheesy as it might sound. And um, as part of that, we've done throughout, especially like the last, you know, year, year and a half, we've done a lot of work on adding a lot of data and context to the app, right? So now in the app, for example, you can see things like custom company KPIs, right? If you look at Netflix, you see subscriber growth. If you look at you know, uh, Uber, you see rider growth, you know, or which cars Tesla has shipped and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, we, for example, also recently added things like earnings calls so that you can listen to them. There's transcripts on earnings calls, all that stuff. And um, the, like, one obvious immediate use case that we saw, which helped us tinker, but then also provide value, again, under the kind of lens of helping people be better investors, um, was really to use GPT to just access all this data in, just in an even faster kind of mode, right? And that's really where Alpha came in. And so think of it as like on every stock, you can just like swipe down to ask Alpha a question. Um, and it's basically your shortcut to uh, get access to all this information just incredibly fast because just that format lends itself to just speed. I mean, it, I'm. I have to say, I'm very pleased to say that one of your uh, goals, values, is trying to make users better investors, right? One of my uh, pet peeves with some companies in the category, and, and I'll uh, refrain from naming them right now, anyway, is the misalignment of incentives, right? Which is, you know, a company succeeding, generating revenue when its customers, its users, are failing or making suboptimal decisions, right? So in the context of investing or trading, um, and I know we're going to talk about payment for order flow later, uh, but it's like actively buying, selling, trading, if you monetize through payment for order flow, generates revenue for the company, but abundant research shows tends to yield worse outcomes for investors if they're actively buying and selling. Uh, so definitely, definitely uh, think that that is a positive goal or sentiment to have. Um, as far as, you know, the AI as a um, sort of user interface 
for this research information, you know, I think is quite interesting. I mean, I find that in uh, in our field, so think like whatever financial services broadly, people who work in this industry tend to be what I would call like spreadsheet people or Excel people, right? Um, you know, highly sort of economically oriented, generally rational thinkers looking to sort of maximize an economic outcome. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that a lot of people, I would, I would venture to guess the large majority of people don't tend to approach life or don't tend to approach their own finances with this sort of rational economic actor mindset, right? They're not going to sit here with Excel and figure out like, oh, I need to construct my portfolio this way to make sure that I'm on the efficient frontier of maximizing risk-adjusted returns, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we've seen all sorts of tech-enabled tools uh, that, that attempt to help consumers, help users make better financial decisions. You know, going way back, Mint, which was like the classic uh, PFM, personal financial management tool. You know, more recently, the whole crop of robo-advisors, Betterment and personal capital and all of that. And these capabilities certainly still exist, but I would sort of posit haven't necessarily lived up to their hype. And I mean, I would argue that perhaps part of that is the you know, the need for people to self-select to, to actually use these tools, right? So when Mint, you know, if Mint is a standalone site or app, I need to choose to download it and engage with that information. You know, if uh, Betterment or Personal Capital or whatever is a standalone service, I need to choose to sign up and use it. You know, do you think the current excitement about AI is different? I mean, how do you, obviously, Alpha is, is in the very early stages, GPT stuff is in the very early stages, but how do you how do you sort of think about it unfolding versus some of the examples I gave? Yeah, I think there's a difference between trends and business models, and I would put even the robo advisor camp more in the business model world than these like advancements in technology. Let's call them right, and they will always have a trendy aspect to it. Of course, you will always you know everyone will flock to it and you know try to build something with it and things will get funded that might have should not and etc cetera, etc cetera. but um uh, but generally speaking i think there are obviously like pretty fundamental difference between the two and i do believe that the advancements we've seen with ai now are really a little bit more of a platform shift and platform shift is always a little bit like it's not like that we're looking at a different screen now or anything necessarily but um, but in the sense of that it touches or will likely touch all industries, it will likely touch all products we use to some extent. You know, if you see it as an end user or not, right, it will have some sort of impact on pretty much everything you will be using, you know. Um, and I think you're already seeing how it impacts a lot of jobs now already, right? If you look at the Photoshop, mm -hmm. um, you know, generative AI, you know, things, it's like, it's like, it's crazy, right? Um you know, I sold more company to Fiverr, for example, you know, and so for example, like, you know, low end quick design work um, will be something that you will likely do yourself, you know, pretty soon uh, and so on. So there's a lot of things like that, um, that I think are, are going to have massive, massive, you know, uh, impacts, right? Things obviously it's incredibly hard to predict really where it's going. And so back to, I think it's just for, for all of us, just like, you know, tinker and learn. You know, and again, mm -hmm. that's the selfish motivation. The, the, the selfish motivation for us buying alpha is to tinker and learn, right? Like to to 
to to have an excuse to really play with the tools and the technologies and and see what we can do with it. And the current use case of Alpha is also a little bit the most obvious one, to be quite honest, of what we have at hand for us and you know what is the most plug and play for us to also ship something to our users, learn something from, and so on. Right? Um, but yeah. I think also like one interesting aspect with the with the AI craze in general. It's like right now, I think you're still seeing that most AI uh, tools and like the work you're able to create with it. Like take ChatGPT as the obvious example. You know, it's a little bit like the average of the internet, and um, you know, and so it's it's you can incredibly quick get to something that is kind of good enough and average, right? That's why it's great for you know spin me out a quick NDA that has XYZ in it, you know, things like that. Um, uh, but I think it's still hard to create something that is kind of like top of class. And so therefore it's much more, you know, augmenting us than necessarily replacing us and so on. I think what's going to be interesting considering how early we still are is what's going to happen once you can create top of class work with the AI, but through uh, like, you know, average talented human that's prompting it. That is, I mm -hmm. think, going to be the moment where, you know, we're all going to look over our shoulders. And considering how good this is now already and how early we are, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we're getting to that stage in certain areas, like, you know, faster than we think. Well, I think it's interesting to use the lens of this being a platform shift, right? I mean, earlier I talked about, you know, spreadsheet people or not spreadsheet people. You can imagine if there's a capability to open the you know the public app on my phone, and instead of needing to look at charts and graphs, which might be you know your preferred way of doing it or my preferred way of doing it, you know essentially interact whether voice or with sort of like a chatbot type UI and say, hey, you know my kid is four years old. I want to start saving for university. You know, what should I do and be able to have something that looks more like a human conversation versus I'm going to spit out some sort of like crazy graph and recommendations about portfolio allocations that that has the potential to be a more uh, digestible format for uh, an average investor or an average consumer. I mean, I think one of the challenges in obvious caveat that I am not an AI expert. I just, you know, read stuff on the internet. Um, one of the major challenges with the current uh, generation of capabilities seems to be around accuracy, right? You've seen these stories of uh, a lawyer asking ChatGPT to draft a brief for him and it's citing cases that don't exist, you know, making up facts. Uh, I think the term we're using is hallucinations. This would seem to pose a pretty serious challenge to using this type of AI in financial services and certainly to give advice in financial services or for investing. You know, how did public get comfortable with deploying these capabilities in, in user-facing features given some of these current limitations? Yeah, so first off, obviously... Um... Things like alpha are not about advice, they're about context, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, generally speaking, especially as a self-directed investing app, like everything we do is never centered around people giving, like giving people actually advice. It's much more about you will make your own decisions. And we more see it our responsibility to give you as much context 
mm. you know, you can make more informed decisions uh, as possible, but, um, you know, we're not going to make decisions for you, right? We're not going to give you advice and tell you what to do. Um, that's just a general, also just for, for us as a company and the type of product that we offer and so on, just, just like how we kind of view things, right? And so with that also, you know, as you start using alpha, how you're being introduced to it, you know, even just like clear disclosures of like, hey, just don't use this for investment advice. Like this is just another tool to try to access some information quickly, you know, and so on. Um, the potential inaccuracy is definitely, I think, one of the biggest potential issues. What we have seen in our testing, and maybe it's just because we have very focused data that we fed the model with, but what we've seen really, it's mostly driven by like slightly wrong prompts. And um, uh, and so it's just more about like how do you interact with it uh, to like kind of get what you what you're actually looking for out of it, and um, and so we're trying um, to kind of guide people more, uh, and that comes through number one these like contextual entry points, and so back to you know if you swipe down on a certain stock, right? The AI already knows you're coming from the stock, and therefore can kind of hone in what kind of data sets it might be looking at and so on. Um, and then the uh, um, and then the other piece is also just things like having certain presets for certain prompts. And that and with that also just like educating and teaching people a little bit, you know, how to phrase things, how to kind of, you know, prompt the thing properly and so on. But that is obviously, you know, again, we are very early ourselves, you know, and so we will learn a lot in that regard. But our testing has really seen shown that like most times when it's not finding something or it's you know maybe misinterpreting your 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 request, it's mostly because the prompt is just slightly off or it's mm. interpreting the prompt a little wrong. And it's mostly fixed by just changing the prompt slightly. Yeah, and I mean it, it's interesting to think about the analogy of sort of your classic Google search or search engine, right? Where you know, I can type something in that search box and it's going to surface those 10 blue links. But when I go and read that site, you know, as a consumer of that information, I need to exercise a certain amount of judgment about like, what is this source? Is it reliable? Should I trust it? So uh, to try to make it specific to the investing scenarios, like, okay, maybe I find, um, you know, some uh, analysis on seeking alpha you know, I need to understand who wrote this, what were, you know, his or her motivations, like, and to your, to the word you used, have the context of like, what does this information mean? Should I rely on it, etc. Um, switching gears a bit as much as I want to do a full, you know, full podcast on AI. Um, you know, I mentioned payment for order flow earlier, back in 2021, which uh, feels like eternity ago at this point, public made the decision to cease accepting payment for order flow. Uh, for listeners that might not be familiar, can you sort of explain a little bit about what that practice is and talk about why the company decided to cease uh, having that as sort of a business model or revenue stream? Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a very complex topic, so I will try no. to <laughs> make it as simple as possible. We'll see uh, uh, you know, um, how well that goes, but... Um, I describe payment for order flow or short PFOF often basically as a game of arbitrage. And so how you think about it is that basically a brokerage um, routes orders that the users are putting in, not 
to exchanges and sometimes not necessarily looks for where the best price is, but sends them directly to a certain so-called market maker. And a market maker is basically in the business of accumulating as much flow as possible, hence why they pay for that flow, right, to receive it, to then be able to kind of match those trades that they receive and, you know, basically take a spread between the bid and the ask. Now, um, the flow that goes to market makers is not transparent. And so whatever prices they receive, whatever kind of requests, you know, whatever flow they receive in terms of bids and ask, no one can really see other than, you know, the market maker. Um, and so therefore they have the unique ability to basically take that spread between the NBBO, the national best bid and offer, which is basically the price you see in the app, you know, say a certain stock mm -hmm. is a hundred bucks right now, right? That's that price that you see on Google finance and the public app and everywhere else, you know, that is the NBBO. And, um, and so if they, for example, see, you know, prices that are 95 bucks, right? Those five bucks, just an example right now, um, uh, that is the spread where they can basically take that arbitrage, you know, between the NBBO and the price that they see as revenues. And then part of that revenues, part of those revenues, they send back to the brokerages sending those flows, hence called payment for order flow. Um, that's roughly how you can think about it, right? Um, now, uh, there is a lot of things, a lot of topics around there, but I would break it down into the two most you know, kind of like biggest issues that we're seeing. Number one, it's incentives. And number two, it's market structures. And so incentives, as you kind of described yourself earlier already, um, if your business model is overly reliant on payment for order flow, as a brokerage, you're incentivized to make people trade a lot, to make them trade risky assets and also risky instruments, like for example, options. Um, options pay way more in payment for order flow than regular securities trades, for example. Right? And so, you know, therefore, uh, you just inherently end up building an experience where you are basically incentivized to funnel people as quickly as possible to an options trade. Um, what happens out of that, obviously, especially if you're some, if you're a company like ours, who is also, you know, partially in the game of, of, of growing the market, right? There's also people on public that might make their first trades on public and so on. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that as people come to the markets that their experience is not one where they're going to burn out immediately. And they kind of run against the wall and lose their money and, you know, uh, and so on. And so where we really always focused on is um, really the sense of we rather build a business where you have people for, you know, decades um, with you um, then, you know, trying to optimize for the highest short-term RPU. And in the long-term, that, that is actually a better business because, you know, the LTV will be higher on that than on the person that burns out on an options trades really quickly. And so, um, and then the other thing of it is um, that uh, we believe it also just adds uh, to the incentive alignment for us as a company. And we believe that people care about that. They care about what happens with their data, they care about you know, who the product is built for, right? And that we are incentivized to build the best product for them and not some you know, market maker around the block. And so that actually makes a huge difference. You know? And it's similar to, you know, if you pay for a product, you know you're the customer and you know, people value that. 
Yeah, yeah. The second piece is sorry, go for it. No, no, no. Uh, you, I think you were you were hinting at uh, one of my favorite cliches, which is if you're getting something for free, you are the product, right? And, and people tend to use that uh, maxim when talking about things like you know, whatever Facebook or Instagram or, or social media, but could also be applied to uh, trading or brokerage in the sense that if it's if if you're getting this for free, but your orders are being, you know, being sold to market makers, and that is the revenue model of the brokerage business, that broker then, to your point, has an incentive to use features, you know, within the app, within the product to encourage you to actively trade more, because that allows the company to maximize its revenue, even if as a user, that might lead to suboptimal outcomes. Exactly. Right. And then the second piece is um, really just market structures. And that's the super complex topic, obviously, that can fill entire podcasts. But uh, the market structure topic is basically also what the ACC is, you know, investigating right now themselves. And the to break it down, make, make it the most simple, I would put it as the question being, um, how can we know that the NBBO is correct? right? The prices in the stock market are actually correct and therefore the markets are efficient. If 40% of the orders are not reported to the NBBO, right? So if, you know, the prices are not actually are informed by all the data, how do we know that's actually correct? And so that I think to like really break it down to the most simplest term, that's how I would put it. Um, and that's obviously why, you know, the SEC, for example, is proposing for more just transparency in flows, you know, um, and, you know, it should there be some, some open auction where, you know, also market makers can bid for these, uh, for the flow versus having direct agreements with, with, uh, brokerages, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, I think the, the, you know, the simplest mm-hmm. way to put the section. Got it. When the company stopped accepting payment for order flow, uh, it launched the ability of users to tip when making trades. Uh, I'll admit I've been quite critical of some companies using tipping business models, uh, although I'll, I'll caveat that that has been focused on tips that have been tied to lending products, particularly small dollar loans, where the mechanism often appears to be an attempt to get around uh, sort of regulations around interest rates, usury caps, etc. You know, can you tell us a little bit about why public decided to accept tips and what sort of response, what sort of traction it has gotten with users? Yeah. Um, so I would say, first off, the just like you just described of this, this notion that um, especially, you know, new digital products and so on always have to be free for it to, you know, get traction and so on, I think is a myth. And that I think that the best products and companies do have pricing leverage and they have pricing leverage because people recognize the value that they're, that they're paying for. Um, now, um, executing trades costs money. It is not free as a stock brokerage necessarily to, you know, just execute trades. And um, and therefore, even just the transparency to users to be upfront about it of like there is no such thing as free trades, and um, and so with that, right, um, giving them the option to to pay for their execution um, 
is obviously on the one side a revenue channel for us, of course, but on the other side, it's also um, just a, a way, so to say, for users to also a little bit like, you know, feel that they're doing something, you know, that is supporting more transparent markets, right? And even when you tip in the app, we literally say, you know, hey, help support fair and transparent markets, you know, tip for your trade. And um, um, and what we've seen is that that is something that most people appreciate and that they just appreciate the transparency of it and understanding that they are the customer. Um, and at the time when we introduced it, um, also, you know, we were a much younger company. We were, I think, only doing equities trading at the time, right? By now we have crypto and alternatives and treasuries and a bunch of other stuff. Um, and the obvious question at the time was also like, wait, you don't do PFOF anymore, so how do you make money? And, and so, you know, having something baked in into the equities trading um, that is not just a straight commission, but that also makes very clear also to the user of like, hey, you know, we make money by you paying us, you know, um, was also, uh, I think, something important as we went off payment for auto flow to, you know, not just go off PFOF, but to also be transparent with users of like, hey, we are creating a model where you're the customer and, you know, um, you know, not some trading firm around the block. And I mean, I think it's, it's, very interesting, you know, particularly in my own personal context, having lived and still have, you know, accounts in the US as well as being based in Europe now. I mean, the the example I always give to illustrate this um, is in sort of the traditional banking space where providing a checking account, a current account is not free, right? In the US, consumers are very trained to expect this idea of a free checking account, whereas in, you know, in Europe, it's not uncommon to pay, you know, a nominal monthly service fee for for this account. And to your point, you know, when you make something quote unquote free, uh, it tends to introduce weird incentives that may not be aligned, uh, and also introduce strange like cross subsidies, right? Where some users uh, implicitly are paying more. That to subsidize free products for other users. So uh, there's something um, I think very uh, desirable about the idea of trying to achieve that transparency. And hopefully that's something that then resonates with users such that you know they are willing to pay because they realize like, yes, I'm getting value for this and thus I'm I'm willing to pay for it. Um, you know, I'm curious to hear from a feature perspective. Uh, how you've decided sort of what to focus on prioritizing and building. I mean, the last couple of years have seen a real roller coaster of investment trends from uh, stonks, uh, sort of the meme stocks of you know GameStop, AMC, et cetera, the SPAC craze, crypto, NFTs. Uh, and now with the rising rate environment, you know, all of a sudden, treasuries are a very cool thing to, to enable investing in, which is probably not something I would have predicted, you know, 18 or 24 months ago. Can you talk a little bit about how public thinks about what features to build, what asset classes to support uh, in what is currently a very trend-driven environment? I mean, how do you decide if you're looking at like a product roadmap or, or a product backlog, how do you decide what to prioritize? 
Yeah. Um, internally, we have this concept of products and levers. Think about it as products are the things we make money on. This could be new asset classes. This could be a subscription product or so on, right? And levers are basically things that uh, can help the product grow. And that can be engagement driven, that can be, you know, top of funnel driven or so on. Um, and so that's just how we kind of divide things up, right? Um, on the product piece of it, um, which mostly is centered around asset classes, really, um, there is a little bit of prediction work that needs to happen there, where it's because it takes obviously time for us to build these products, where, you know, as we are not completely, you know, having everything on the app yet that's out there in the world, um, the prioritization of that is a little bit driven by us trying to predict a little bit where things are going. And that's also where the Treasuries product, for example, came from, right? So, you know, we started building that, called it beginning Q2 last year, as rates started to rise. And, you know, as that happened, you know, and we didn't have um, um, any like cash yield product on the app yet, um, called like a high yield savings account or something. Um, we made the choice to, instead of doing that, to actually go directly into, into offering T-builds, right? And there was some prediction work that happened there, right? And then, um, you know, it was a little bit luck, to be honest, that we launched it and suddenly you hit all-time, you know, highs or like not all-time, but like, you know, uh, decades plus. Yeah, uh, in our, in uh, our lifetime, perhaps. <laughs> yield suddenly. Um, um, there was obviously some luck connected to that, I'm not going to lie, but, um, but that's truly how we kind of, you know, think about it, right? So you have to a little bit, uh, think about where, where, where the world is going and prioritize, uh, and, and prioritize from there. Makes sense. I mean, the features that you make available presumably help you define competitive advantage or competitive differentiation in what has become a really, really crowded space, right? I mean, obviously, you have other players like Robinhood, uh, as well as your traditional brokers, Fidelity, Schwab, whatever. Uh, and even sort of the wallet apps are getting into adding investment or equities capabilities. So Cash App has this. And with the underlying uh, APIs like Apex and DriveWealth, it's a relatively easy for an app or for a company to add some of these capabilities. I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you think about differentiating public in this crowded market. You know, is it a focus on a specific segment of users? Is it a focus on, you know, specific uh, investing or information analysis capabilities? I mean, I do know that one of the the challenges for some players in this space, particularly you know the Robinhood and Cash App, which I mentioned, is they tend to focus or attract um, investors with relatively small small amounts of money to invest. So I want to say at one point, Robinhood's average account size was like five hundred dollars or something. So I mean, how do you think about what segment of the market you're working you know working to attract? And how do you think about sort of defining differentiation versus some of these other players? Yeah. Um, so I think in the space, you have a lot of fintech players who are kind of talking about trying to be the money super app and kind of do everything that's somehow related to money. We're not trying to do that. We are an investing product and we're focused on investing and we're building the best investing product. And so um, that is what the focus is on. And therefore that's also why we're, for example, so heavily focused really on, you know, these like 
three main pillars. One is assets. And so just be more multi-asset, right? So we now stocks, ETFs, crypto, uh, T-bills, you know, alternatives, which falls into art, um, you know, music royalties, you know, something's going to come soon, um, you know, sneakers, for example, even, and so on. And from there, just like keep expanding that because we believe that for people to be able to holistically manage their portfolio um, is really, you know, what makes them again, like to the sense of like makes them be better investors when it makes them people to to manage it more more uh, decisively um but also it's where we believe we can build just like the best investing product um because we are focused on it where other players might want to do one tab that is investing on the back of drive off or whatever you know and um and the thing is also in this business um you know, it's not as easy as just like spinning something up on some API provider. Like you're not going to make any money on that. You know, your margin will be negative. And um, uh, and so, you know, for us, it's a sense of, you know, we are running a, you know, very high margin business, right? So mid 80%, right? 80, 84%, 85% last month, for example. And so, you know, and so it's a little bit of a different game there uh, compared to some other, uh, uh, you know, um, call these like money super apps or these wallet apps and so on. Um, I think that's, that's really kind of like, like core of what we're looking at. Got it. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, I noticed that you have a background as a creative director, including at, uh, very well-regarded firms like RGA. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of like the brand identity and, and marketing of public? So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm personally the target audience for the app, but I definitely hear, uh, public's podcast ads on on a number of shows that I listen to. So I mean, um this is a bit of a novel topic for for this uh for this podcast, but I'm curious to hear how you think about like constructing the brand identity and sort of who who is the target persona or personas for for public. Yeah. Um I would say that the target persona has a little bit changed over the over the years, right? So we're now in year 4 in the market. So like year 5 coming year 4 in the market. And with the more the, the product itself matured, the more also the, the people who come in and use the product have matured, right? And so, you know, the investing experience, you know, the, the, the assets people bring on the app have drastically increased. Like our first deposit has, 10, has 10x in the last 12 months, for example, right? And so on. Um, and so I think that kind of, you know, it's a little bit like dependent on like the life cycle of where you're at, like where, where you like where, like where you are at as a, like as a company, right? If you start off as a equities only, mobile only app, for example, it's going to be hard for you to acquire people who are more experienced, right? It's just, it's just a, it's just a question of, you know, the maturity of your product and, and how far along you are and so on. Now, um, um, I think the one thing that uh, doesn't change um, is... I think specifically in our space in financial services, trust is everything. And um, we often talk about this thing, um, which you know I call emotional retention. And so emotional retention is where you are with a company because or with the product, because not just because of the, the, the features it provides, but also because you have some sort of emotional bond with that with that company. And that is often coming because of value alignment. And so as you kind of build your company and as you grow, um, basically always to try to find moments to prove your values. And that is something that we just continuously done throughout as we grew public to always 
find moments where we can prove, for example, that we're for transparency, where we're proving that we're on the side of the customer, right? And you know, the 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 whole sense that we stop participating in payment for order flow is one of maybe the most famous examples of that, but there's a ton of smaller ones as well, right? And um, and I think what that emotional retention really does is it's incredibly hard to compete with. It's easy to compete on a feature level, right? We will always kind of launch something that maybe someone else will launch in the near-term future as well, or we will launch something that maybe someone else has already launched, you know, and so on. Like it's like those things, like you will always overlap with certain other competitors in certain spaces at all times. Like that will always be the case. Um, but and therefore it's 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 hard to compete purely on a feature basis because you will always play catch up. What is really hard to compete with is this emotional retention, is this emotional connection someone has with the company. And what really happens out of that is that you're building a fan base, not just a user base. And so where a user just uses the features of your product, a fan rallies behind your company. And all these proof points that you have created throughout the lifetime of your company, where you prove your values, those become arguments that you know these fans can use to rally on your behalf and that really creates you know word of mouth that creates great retention you know and all the kind of good stuff that comes with it uh, and so on and i think that's again why you know i think it's really hard to build fans if you know uh, if if your business model is not aligned with your customers for example you know uh, it's just you're just going to have a hard time because you always will have moments where you know those tensions will kind of you know, uh, uh, you know, drift you apart, so to say, from your from your actual, you know, members. Well, I mean, I, I think that's a great point, right? I, how there is, in a sense, no greater commodity than money, right? It's it's fungible, right? Borrowing a dollar from Chase versus Amex, or trading a stock on Fidelity versus Schwab, is you know fundamentally essentially the same thing. So in a way, that brand differentiation or turning a, a customer or a user into a fan, building that attachment, it's very, very hard to do, right? I think most, you know, I would venture to guess 99% of financial services companies uh, are very bad at it. But there are examples, Amex comes to mind, or USAA, or in the UK, Monzo, of going from you know, a customer, a user to somebody who has that attachment and becomes sort of a sticky uh, advocate for for the business. So that that I think is a really great point. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. Leif, thank you so much for taking the time. For folks who want to follow you or learn more about public, where can they find you? So first off, obviously, I got to I gotta do the plug. Go to get the plug, get the plug. If you're if you're if you're not a member yet, right? T bolts are at an all-time high right now. So or not all time, but like you know, decade plus uh, long high. And you know, maybe those rates won't stay. We'll see. You know, the Fed already has paused their rate hike. So you know, lock lock in your rate um, before it's too late. That's my little that's my little ad here. And then uh, for me personally, um, you can you can follow me on Twitter if you like. That's live L E I F Thunder T H U N. D-E-R, um, and the whole Thunder piece is a whole story for another podcast one day. All right. I will have to have you back on. Uh, until next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me.